Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. It might have been predictable, what with the ongoing spread of the coronavirus pandemic, but at least one national park has closed its doors again. Big Bend National Park in Texas closed this past Thursday to the public after one of the park employees was diagnosed with COVID-19. During the past week, we also reported on efforts by the Blackfeet Nation next to Glacier National Park and the Havasupai Tribe in Grand Canyon to prevent outsiders from bringing the disease onto their lands. There also were two deaths in the parks and a bison that a California woman wanted to photograph up close seriously gored her. You can read those and other stories about national parks and protected areas on nationalparkstraveler.org. Residential environmental learning centers provide a unique approach to teaching about the world of nature. With magnificent settings in the national parks, these nonprofit organizations provide the expertise and take the time to guide students to a deeper understanding and appreciation of conservation, ecosystems, and the larger natural world beyond the borders of the national parks. But the survival of these residential environmental learning centers is in jeopardy. As the president of one such center said this week, the impact of coronavirus is an extinction-level event. Over the coming weeks, the traveler's Lynn Riddick talks to the leaders of a few of those organizations and the creative new ways they are finding to keep their doors open. The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. It's an environmental learning center, a training center, a conference center, and a leadership center, all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to deepen the public's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. What better place to learn about conservation, geology, watershed systems, and old growth forests than in the forests and streams, mountain paths and meadows of the national parks? I'm Lynn Riddick and I'm speaking with Philip Kilbridge, who is president and CEO of NatureBridge, headquartered in San Francisco. What are the challenges facing this residential environmental learning center in light of the COVID pandemic? And why is it more important now than ever to foster young advocates who will understand and protect the natural world? Hi, Phil. Welcome to The Traveler. Lynn, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Your organization, Nature Bridge, based in San Francisco, offers week-long outdoor student educational programs, primarily for grades 4 through 12, in four different national parks and recreational areas. In California, you have Yosemite and Golden Gate National Recreational Area. In Washington, Olympic National Park. 
And in Virginia, southwest of Washington, D.C., near Marine Corps Base Quantico, you have Prince William Forest Park. Tell us about the educational programs in these places and the students who participate. Well, NatureBridge is super proud to be the National Park Service's largest outdoor educational partner. And we are fortunate to have 50 years almost of experience introducing students to the wonder and science of their national parks. Um, Really, we're all about discovery and learning for students last year from 26 different states and 10 foreign countries. The idea is to welcome students into these parks to give them a sense of place to help them understand the interconnections between these parks and their home communities, and then to become scientists while they are out there testing hypotheses while doing challenge hikes to the top of Vernal Falls or um, a hike around Lake Crescent and Olympic National Park or discovering the Piedmont Forests of Prince William Forest Park or out on Rodeo Beach at the Golden Gate National Recreation Area. So it's really giving them exposure to and an introduction to their national parks. So they'll become long-term stewards of these parks that we all care about and our own heritage and inheritance. Now, you reach quite a few students. Um, You provide programs for 35,000 students from 600 schools each year. What's growth been like for programs over the past 10 years? Well, what we try and focus on in addition to serving more students is, is increasing the quality of those engagements. So we've had ebbs and flows depending upon impacts of recessions, depending upon impacts of what is going on right now, this global pandemic, in fact, the dual pandemics of COVID-19 and, and of course, the increasing and ongoing assault on the lives of black and brown individuals. So we have to pay attention to the larger context in which we are working. While we have grown over the years, we've also had the impacts of, of natural disasters. So for example, we have historically had a campus in Southern California in the Santa Monica Mountains and out in the Channel Islands and a devastating fire, the Woolsey Fire, two years back, destroyed that campus in the Santa Monica Mountains, um, thereby taking that program offline and reducing the number of students served. So we have probably flowed between 25,000 and 35,000 students a year, um, with our high point being about a year ago. And I want to talk a little bit more about the COVID and some of the racial questions in a little bit. But I did want to ask you, how do you go about recruiting students? And do you work with the same school districts every year? So we, in in our past program year, which is 2019-2020, we were scheduled to work with almost 700 different schools from 26 different states across the country. Many of those are time and time again repeat returners. So for example, Cupertino School District um, near San Jose, California has been coming to our program for almost 47 years. But then we have new schools that are coming each and every year. So we, we have our own team that is communicating directly with schools, our operations teams, our marketing teams, and engaging them year after year, but also making sure we're out in the community, making new connections with schools that really value the opportunity to test next generation science standards, to have these deeply engaging experiences, national parks as additive to their work. And and frequently that happens because we have a champion teacher, someone who 
has had a transformative experience as a kid in a national park or outdoors or had their own outdoor learning experience and they join us they become part of the partnership and they they advocate within their school for the administration and principal and PTA or others to help support the engagement. So yes, many, many, many long-term partners, um, but then each and every year, we're probably bringing in 50 to 100 new schools. Had you ever had to turn people away? Do you have a greater demand than what you can fill? Yes, and and for two reasons. One is there is more demand, particularly at our long-established campuses um, of Yosemite and the Golden Gate National Recreation Area, than we can can host. So we can host about 10,000 students a year in the Golden Gate National Recreation Area, and there are waiting lists and more schools who would want to come. So we are trying to expand that campus to serve 13,000 students a year, and that would be wonderful. We've gotten some government investment and huge philanthropic investment from our local community. Um, so we're gonna be transforming some, some former army barracks into dorms and bunks for, for students. Um, but then the other function of capacity and demand is, everyone would love to come like the third week in March and not everybody can come in the third week of March. So you have to ask schools to come in December and January and promise them that they're going to get their own amazing experience then. And, and, just to share how that might look. Yes, in, in March, the weather's warmer and, and the challenge hikes, you're seeing wildflowers um, in Yosemite National Park. But if you come in December, you've got the park to yourself. <laughs> you, are, you are really able to have um, the run of the place discovering and exploring you know, in, in, in March and waterfall season in, in Yosemite National Park. Uh, our, our former National Park Service director used to call Yosemite Valley the Times Square of the National Park Service with people from all across the globe descending upon that location. So that's epic, that's wonderful, but it's also pretty spectacular to have the park with far fewer visitors. So that's part of the, the additional opportunity and challenge related to serving more students is is capacity and the time of year when folks want to come. Well, paint us a picture of a camper's typical week in a Nature Bridge program. Well, why don't we talk for a second about our campus in Olympic National Park. So we make it a school from Seattle Public Unified, uh, Seattle Seattle School District. So uh, a, a school would arrive at Olympic National Park at our campus on Lake Crescent. They would get uh, off of the bus they would get introduced to their educators. They would do a couple of exercises to get to know the location, to be introduced to safety norms, to be introduced to where they're sleeping. But over the course of the week, what they're going to do is they're going to go on a challenge hike to the top of Mount Storm King. They are going to take an early morning canoe trip in one of our 28-person Voyager canoes working on teamwork and social-emotional learning. They're going to be doing team building, but then they're going to go on a trip to the Elwa River, um, the location where two of the four largest dam removal projects in the history of the United States occurred just five miles away from our campus, and they'll understand the impacts of of damming and hydroelectric, and they'll wrestle with their own philosophical choices on 
economic impacts versus environmental impacts. They'll study um, salmon and their spawning patterns and the number that are now making their way upstream, 72 um, river kilometers um, upstream from where they used to go. So it'll be a combination of social emotional learning, sense of place, cultural history, as well as science experimentation investigation. Sounds really great. How many employees do you have and what is the breakdown of educators, support staff, administrative personnel? Well, Lynn, it's, uh, it depends on what date you ask me that question. If you had asked me that question on March 1st, before this pandemic hit, the answer would have been 220 staff members um, across our campuses, over 120 of which were direct educators working with students. Um, Today, that answer is 36 total full-time employees because we are not offering programs right now. Without students out on trail, um, we don't have work and employment for so many. Our food service workers, our our operations team, our facilities team, um, in addition to the educators. So so that number has shrunk significantly um, and, and the vast, vast majority of those team members have been furloughed. Tell me a little bit more about educators and where are they from? Uh, How do you recruit them under typical circumstances? Our educators are, and I want to be careful with this because our educators are so much the glue of the organization, but I do not want to discount all of the incredible support staff that has to make sure that our students are fed, that our students have bunks to sleep in, um, that the that students um, aren't cared for from a risk management perspective. So there's so many team members. But our educators are largely individuals and they they range in age from college graduates and 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 younger individuals around 22 to 23 years of age to we have one staff member who's 70 um, and we have people with master's degrees and college degrees. But the thing that I think ties them together is so many um, have years and years of demonstrated experience in organizations like ours. Um, So they have worked from across the country at outstanding organizations like Wolfridge or North Cascades Institute or Cuyahoga, and they come to us with um, an anxiousness to get out on trail with students, to engage with them, a particular commitment from so many of our staff members to work with public school students from across the country who would not otherwise have access to their national parks were it not for their partnership with Nature Bridge. Many have science backgrounds, hard science or earth science, and and they know about the uh, next generation science standards, but they also have a keen sense of place and they also have a strong desire to build safety and trust and and self-reflection among students. Now, Nature Bridge has an impressive roster of board members as well. What are some of the businesses and organizations that they represent or have represented? We We are so fortunate to have across Nature Bridge 80 different individuals who volunteer as board directors or board advisors for this organization. So our our commitment level from board members is just absolutely unbelievable. And they come from all across, like in the outdoor industry, 
REI and North Face have had board members with us uh, currently and in the past. Um, we have folks from outstanding law firms like Wilson, Sonsini, Goodrich and Rosati and, and Davis Wright Tremaine. We have folks who've served on the board of the National Park Foundation and, and the former CEO of the National Parks Conservation Association. So just individuals who have a demonstrated commitment to our field, but they also bring very, very deep subject matter expertise, whether it be on risk management or whether it be on financial acumen or fundraising. Um, so, so it's not just where they work, but it's what they do professionally and how they bring that um, to help NatureBridge be our very best selves. Now, you also have a very impressive list of partners, including government agencies, educational entities, corporations, and other nonprofits. Tell us who some of these partners are and how you work together for mutual benefit. Our primary partner is the National Park Service, and, and it's incredible to be aligned with this entity that um, really has been a promoter of America's best idea, access to an inheritance of our national parks. And across the education leadership in the National Park Service, um, a real commitment to work with us because um, the National Park Service understands that we help deliver on their educational mission. So that, of course, is, is the first and primary. Um, other partnerships include NOAA, as we've worked on climate change work at our parks and, and having students understand the impacts and, and, and climate science and the impacts on their own communities. Um, so those are a couple of really, really enormous ones. Um, but we're also partnering with the Nature Conservancy in small ways, helping advise and guide their work on environmental education at locations like the Dangermon Preserve in Santa Barbara. So our, our partnerships are wide ranging and, and you know, they could include folks like um, Outdoor Alliance for Kids and, and their work with helping to advocate for access to National Park for students. Um, Youth Outside, which is a tremendous social justice organization that is about safety, security, access, tearing down uh, cultures um, and building up new cultures um, that that support the access and voice of, of youth, particularly youth of color, outdoor Afro um, and Rue Map, and she is just a, a phenomenal champion and leader um, in this field. So there's so many that we can learn from and, and grow alongside with, and those are just a few examples. Now, going back to the topic of the COVID-19 situation, as the president and CEO of a nonprofit organization that impacts so many young people, describe your emotions when it became clear to you that COVID-19 was going to have an immediate impact on your season and require sweeping changes going forward. Since mid-February of 2020, I've been involved in almost daily meetings um, on the COVID-19 situation. We have a campus up uh, in the Pacific Northwest and an office in Seattle. And of course, that was an early emerging hotspot of COVID-19 and coronavirus. Um, so we were early on getting a sense of the implications and, and the gravity of the situation. We, of course, are deeply thoughtful and considered of risk management protocol. So not only were we trying to think about what are the impacts for our own students, and, and by the way, we are, we are always on heightened risk management protocol. During the winter, you know, 
kids get sick, kids get the flu. Um, they bring the flu from outside. We have had situations where we've had concerns about health. And, and fortunately, we have an incredible ability to isolate students, um, quarantine students, care for students, make sure that they are taken care of um, and to isolate those impacts. And, and so in some ways we saw this as how do we heighten our risk management measures should this impact our actual campuses. But pretty soon it became clear that it wasn't just about our campuses, it was just the broader environment. We realized schools were going to no longer have students in session. Not only were students not going to be going on field trips, students were going to be learning in front of their computers or not learning in front of their computers from home. Um, so it did not matter what our risk management protocol was. It did not matter that 99% of the time that kids are on our campus, except for when they're sleeping and eating, is outdoors and on trail where the transmission of viruses like this are far, far less likely. What matters is that the schools weren't going to be open in order to send their students. So we have been um, aware and engaged with our schools very early on. And it just became clear that, that this was much, much bigger, <laughs> clearly, than just Nature Bridge. It's much bigger than just restaurants. It's much bigger than, than any industry, cruise lines, et cetera, that, that's out there. The CDC and others were going to uh, demand quarantine, demand social distancing, and we would need to not just manage our own risk management uh, protocols, but we were going to need to be aware of the larger trends uh, societally. Of course, we're looking a lot at what fall is gonna look like in next year. Unfortunately, just yesterday um, announced to our full staff and, and our board that um, we are not going to have fall overnight programs for schools. Not because there aren't a few schools who want to come, but because there's not enough schools for us to open all of our campuses and to be able to financially make that work. Even as we can manage risk management protocols. So I think we are looking at not emerging at the earliest for overnight programs until spring of 21. Um, and a lot of that depends upon progress that's made in the coming months on treatments, vaccines, um, on a second or third wave of, of COVID-19. So for our overnight programs, which is really what we are known for, really what we consider ourselves leaders in the field on, it's gonna be some period of time until we get back to anything remotely close uh, to, to normal. So some of your overnight programs that you've had to cancel, um, let me list a few. Your teen environmental education mentorship in Golden Gate National Recreational Area, your Yosemite-based 12-day Armstrong Scholars Program for young women is canceled. Your two-week high school Alcoa Scholars Program in Yosemite and Olympic is canceled. Yosemite is our backyard for young relatives of area community members is postponed. So without any overnight programs, including these, what are you able to offer? How are you modifying programs to still have business coming in? Yeah, and we can certainly talk about the deep programmatic impact of the loss of those programs. We can talk about the staffing that is related to those programs and the jobs that we were able to help provide and offer. Um, and then we can talk also about the financial impact of, of said decisions. So 
as context, some of those programs, even if they are deep backpacking programs where we felt like we could monitor the risk management safely, um, unfortunately required students to fly in from all across the country or in the case of the Alcoa Scholars Program from all across the globe. Um, so we're reacting to what we saw as we could manage things safely on the ground, but those students still need to arrive on campus from a variety of different locations. What we're doing, we're, we started this spring offering virtual programs to schools. So, for example, we had an opportunity for a Bay Area school to experience Olympic National Park with us, to meet with an educator, to get a sense of place remotely, to do some synchronous and asynchronous learning with us um, on science experiments and studying lichen. So we're doing virtual programming. That's just one example, and we're looking to innovate even more as we look to the fall, we're going to be modifying those virtual programs to make sure that when schools want to engage with them, they can be multiple touch points. Um, we have connected with a whole host of teachers who have helped us understand that there are at least two things that we can help meet a significant demand for. One is teachers, particularly middle school teachers, are not feeling like they can do virtual science learning as well as they would have hoped. Um, so if we can step into that gap with investigative science experiments that students can do from home or virtually, that's a huge, uh, huge need. Um, and then the second is that teachers do need a break. So if they can have a live Nature Bridge educator with their students for 45 minutes, three times a week, for some period of time, that's a huge relief to those teachers who can be assured that their students are going to get an outstanding educational experience, but they can also grade papers on the side or they can plan for their next lesson plan. Um, the, the impact of this uh, COVID-19 crisis on teachers is significant. And, and so if we can help meet student needs, improve student outcomes while also giving teachers a break, that's a real winning formula. And, and it seemed to go well with our trials this spring, such that over the summer, we're going to be able to really nail it down such that, uh, such that in the fall with, uh, with schools, whether they be in or out of session, they can still get a taste of their national park classrooms and the science that goes with it. Now, regarding the organization's financial picture, and please correct me if I cite incorrect numbers, in 2019, you had over $12 million in program revenue and $4.5 million in pledged donations. What kind of percentage drop are you expecting and planning for this year? And you know, what areas can you reduce? So Lynn, fortunately, we've been met with incredible support and investment from the philanthropic community. And, and fascinatingly enough, you know, we've got the long-standing major foundations that have supported our work that have you know either continued their investment and or released restrictions on the investment because they trust us to manage through this crisis in the most thoughtful way but fascinatingly we've had so much peer-to-peer -peer fundraising and support driven by staff members and board members um, we had over a million dollars raised um, in a two-month period and in those donations which were from $10 to we even had a $100,000 investment, we had 400 new first-time donors come to the organization um, who had never donated to us 
before. So fortunately, philanthropically, people stay and remain committed to us because they understand that the great paradox of this moment is students need access to nature and their national parks more than ever um, when they're spending eight hours a day in front of a computer, in front of a screen. Never has there been a time at which our types of programs are needed. And again, the paradox is that because of COVID-19, they're being um, restricted from doing so. But nobody, it's not lost on anybody that our program is going to be so urgently needed throughout and past this pandemic. And so, so folks want us to survive and in fact thrive over the long term. And the impact financially on the organization is significant and dramatic. If you think about us not offering a deep level of overnight programming from effectively March 15th of 2020 to possibly March 1st of 2021, that's approximately $12 million in earned revenue that may not be recaptured. Yes, we can do remote programs, but those are going to be minimally, uh, a minimal cost to schools. Um, We are looking at doing um, a series of day programs, either in schools, in local parks with schools, or in our national park classrooms. But that's really an untested model historically. So it requires us to engage uh, schools and students um, in a new way. And, And if, if you talk to school administrators, they are struggling mightily with how do we even offer programs in the fall. And, and uh, so, so the financial impact is significant. It means reinventing and invigorating, reinvigorating our programs in new ways. It means massively cutting expenses um, and reducing staffing, and and it also means looking to uh, generous supporters. It means looking to the National Park Service for, um, you know, if we have fees and if we have requirements from them, is there flexibility in not paying those for a year or two? And and so we're we're trying to figure out and negotiate everything we can. It means giving up our office spaces where we can. We have an office in San Francisco that we're really trying to get out of the lease of. Um, it's it's it's, it's we've got to move to a remote workforce and save money wherever we can. And everybody in the organization, even those who've remained in their positions, have either seen a dramatic cut in hours or a dramatic cut in pay. So it's been, it is a shared pain scenario, um, but it is really acutely um, hitting a whole host of, of, of team members um, at this time and, and will so in the future. Now, all of your generous donations aside, what kind of other assistance have you sought? Have you investigated the Paycheck Protection Program or other kind of funding for nonprofits? Yes, we have applied for and received a Paycheck Protection Program in the amount of uh, a loan in the amount of just under $2 million. And, and it's a loan until otherwise. The, the Small Business Administration um, and Congress, I think, very much has a desire for those loans to turn into forgivable loans, but they are based on a whole series of criteria that need to be met. One of the things that we are examining now is because national parks are closed and or are just reopening and or um, because schools are closed um, and or because the CDC has guidelines about the number of people that can congregate in a particular area. 
there are significant restrictions on our ability to reopen and we're trying to analyze and understand those to see what level of, of forgiveness can be applied on this paycheck protection program for, for NatureBridge. We are working with our donors on release of restrictions so that we can use those funds um, for uh, critical payroll expenses, critical utility and rent expenses, um, and other things. We're looking at um, other new ways to earn revenue, um, new program models, and we are looking at the programs that we can offer that could be philanthropically supported. So it's a combination of both sides of the ledger. How can you massively reduce expenses and where can you get in new revenue to support our work? because the premise is donors, the community, the National Park Service, our schools and students all are unanimous in their understanding that our work is critical. Connecting students to their national parks and the chance to discover and learn in these national parks is going to be more important than ever through and after this pandemic. I'll have more with Philip Kilbridge, President and CEO of NatureBridge, after this short break. Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy the Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, Foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the National Park System for decades to come. See their successes at gtnpf.org. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It's also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences that it offers endure for generations to come. You can show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. I'm talking with Philip Kilbridge, who is the president and CEO of NatureBridge. It's an outdoor environmental education organization based in San Francisco with learning programs in four national parks and recreational areas. I want to talk more broadly about the field of outdoor learning. I want to ask you about a nationwide survey done in April by the Lawrence Hall of Science at the University of California, Berkeley, on the impact of the pandemic. 995 environmental education organizations responded to the survey. The results showed that as of May 2020, organizations were estimating $225 million in lost revenue and either furloughed or reduced some 12,000 staff. Further, respondents said that if social distancing continues through the end of 2020, 
These organizations would face over $600 million in lost revenue with 30,000 furloughed or reduced staff. And an estimated 11 million students will have missed out on outdoor learning experiences in 2020. The most severely affected 58% will be participants from marginalized communities. What are your thoughts on these findings? It sounds like they're pretty uh, akin to what you were just describing. Well, Lynn, it is what I saw in that Beatles and Lawrence Hall of Science study that you just referenced was not shocking based upon the experience that we are having at Nature Bridge and so incredibly disheartening. This phrase is shared a lot within our community. This is an extinction level event for our field. Um, the two key headlines that you highlighted are that a vast majority of organizations like ours may go out of business by January 1st, 2021 if social distancing continues because of their reliance on students and the, the, the power of keeping your educators working with students um, and earned revenue that comes from schools um, to pay for that opportunity. Schools prioritize this in their own learning. And then the other headline is that as advances have happened in the last few years on equity and inclusion work across our field, there is a fear that at many organizations, that may be one of the first things um, that gets jettisoned um, at this time because of the investment that that, that, that takes. Um, we are making a case at Nature Bridge that we need to invest in our equity inclusion work more than ever now and, and throughout. And that's not just about fundraising for access and scholarships. It's really about improving our own practices and our own systems um, and our own protocols um, at Nature Bridge to be a more inclusive and more equitable organization. So the, the findings from the Lawrence Hall of Sciences report were not shocking, and yet they should be shocking to the broader community. It is a tragic reality and, and for no one more than for the student that would get a first time experience coming to their national park and engaging with their peers um, in a safe, exciting, fascinating way that can drive their long term, can be, can be just a, a, a first experience that causes them to want to become lifetime champions and advocates for their national parks. Now, findings in the survey also found that outdoor science and environmental education organizations in the state of California are especially at risk. And the survey found that these organizations in California are facing greater losses than similar organizations nationwide and are even less likely than their national peers to reopen. And if social distancing continues, only 27% of organizations believe that it's definite or very likely they will be able to reopen. There were 228 California organizations that participated in this survey. Was Nature Bridge one of them? And you know, what was your most disturbing thought regarding the California segment of this? Yeah, Nature Bridge absolutely partners with and participates in, in this survey and, and so many others about the impact, not just on, on outdoor learning, but also on nonprofit organizations across the country. It's interesting to me to try to figure out why California is different than other 
places across the country. And I'm not sure if that is because California was early on with more significant social distancing restrictions, if we are seeing more schools and more districts make proactive decisions about not allowing field trips through the fall and beyond. So I'm still trying to figure out what it is about California-specific respondents that make the challenge more acute. I don't think for us that we see what's happening in California being different than our campus in Virginia or our campus in the state of Washington. Um, To me, it all feels fairly co-equal in terms of, of the impacts on schools and students and our ability to welcome students soon and, and clearly as soon as it's safe to do so and, and with risk management as a primary and the primary lens for, for welcoming schools. I want to ask you about another study. In October 2017, Public Employees for Environmental Responsibility asked the Interior Department's Office of Inspector General to evaluate operations of Residential Environmental Learning Centers, RELCs for short. And the IG, as you know, published a 33-page report late in 2019. And it found that the National Park Service did not ensure that all activities and services provided by RELCs complied with agreements, statutes, and regulations and that some RELC activities strayed away from their educational missions, but that some failures are that of the Park Service, not the RELCs, including failure to monitor operations and requirements of reporting to the Park Service. What are your thoughts on the report? What do you think about it was fair, and what findings do you have issues with? Yeah, the OIG audit, I mean, I think it's always important to have accountability um, in in our work and in our partnership with um, the National Park Service. What I found to be promising about the report is that I think the National Park Service and the Department of the Interior absolutely get that there should be augmented experiences in national parks that help support the educational mission of our nonprofits. What I really heard is that we just need a legal mechanism to do things. So for example, we do have conferences. We have nonprofit organizations come out for retreats and conferences over the weekend when we don't have students out on campus because they're back at home. If we can have these conferences with nonprofit organizations, it can help serve a community need. It can also bring in vital revenue to help us offer more scholarships for more schools. And so I think it's really about just making sure that there's the the mechanism And I think we're looking at something called a commercial use authorization that would allow that to happen and understand all of the implications of it. So I think it's it's a solution-minded National Park Service um, that wants to help ultimately students learn in their national parks and deliver on the educational mission. So it's, uh, you know, we're, we're very fortunate the National Park Service gets our mission and gets that we advance their mission. So that's what we're all working towards cooperatively. I want to shift to another huge topic, diversity, racial equality, and opportunity. Your organization has made a strong statement on your website to recognize, reject, and dismantle racism, making parks and outdoor spaces safe for all people. Tell me about diversity among NatureBridge students and faculty, and what are your plans regarding diversity and access going forward? Yeah, it is such a 
that this is a long overdue reckoning and consideration for for education, for systems across the nation. Nature Bridge can look at itself over the past number of years and look at the systems that we are trying to improve and replace and upgrade and and take some solace in the work that we've done. But what's so clear um, is that we have so much more work to do. I mean, there's, there's so much work for Nature Bridge and other organizations, corporations, and entity to do. Um, what we are trying to do is look at leaders in the field who are really outstanding at not just environmental education, but social justice. So we look to leaders like Youth Outside that, uh, that can help us understand how to become a more equitable organization. I've participated in an almost two-year-long program alongside two of our Nature Bridge senior leaders um, in a series of workshops, retreats, and overnight experiences on working towards equitable organizations. Until recently, I was feeling like we were making decent advances towards that equity. Um, moving past a place where five years ago we tried to measure our effectiveness on the percent of students of color that we served and the schools that we engage. Um, and that's not nearly enough a measure of an organization's success and equity. Um, so it's about systems of cultural relevancy for students. It's about making educators uh, feel safe in our environment. And, you know, we, we had a listening session with Nature Bridge educators we had um, and our entire staff yesterday. And it was powerful. It was intense. It was, um, it was deeply challenging as we understand all the work that is in front of us to become a more equitable organization. So this is a dramatic time that's not just about safety and security and openness and welcoming of students of color into our programs, uh, but it's about our own systems. And, and I acknowledge that this is a white-led organization that needs to continue to do dramatic work. And even in these incredible financial constraints, we need to find ways to invest in, in this work. Tell me about your programs for kids facing systemic obstacles in their schools and communities. I'm especially interested in your program at Prince William Forest Park in Virginia, especially because of its segregated history. Every student has assets. Every school has assets. Some of them have not been invested in historically. Some of them have tremendous systemic hurdles to overcome, but every student is full of promise and ambition and excitement and 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 we need to we we need to change our practices to help every student feel like they have a place in their national parks to grow and learn. Um, our work in Prince William Forest uh, Park has been really um, phenomenal. It's a partnership, not just with former director of the National Park Service, John Jarvis, who really helped us get that work started, but it's a partnership with Washington, D.C. 
public schools. So we have had a whole host of schools come from, from DC public schools over the last number of years to this campus, just 45 minutes out of DC. It's in this beautiful Piedmont forest. It's actually near um, Quantico Marine Base um, for those who want to get a sense of where we are geographically. And the history of Prince William Forest Park is that it was a, a civilian conservation corps park built, I think in about 1933 in the new deal under President uh, FDR. And um, because of the segregated history of Virginia and the National Park Service at that time, there were multiple camps built and some were for white families and some were for black families. Um, and we work in a formerly segregated, um, what was African-American camp um, at Prince William Forest Park. And we need, it is our, it's our duty, obligation, and opportunity to share the history of this segregated location as a part of that sense of place, uh, part of cultural history, part of learning um, and growing, um, and so that students feel very welcome in these national parks. So, so that's an example of a program that we're doing that really has, um, interestingly enough, it's, it's funded in large part by a bag tax. Um, in Washington, D.C. That, uh, that local leaders in Washington, D.C. saw as a great opportunity to not only clean up waterways and rivers, but also to improve environmental education opportunities uh, for students. So, um, so that is an example of, of a program that we are doing and, and, and not losing sight of during this pandemic. How many kids get to go through programs there, typical year? We're at about 2,500 just at the Prince William Forest Park, and this is our newest campus that was just started about seven years ago. Fortunately, the um, Prince William Forest Park superintendent is really phenomenal, and she's trying to work with us on new ways to expand our programming. Something that your listeners probably are paying attention to is the Great American Outdoors Act. Um, that is a huge potential investment in national parks uh, infrastructure. Um, and with the appropriate investment, if this is passed by the House and then signed in by the president um, in the next couple of months, it could have real impact, for example, on Prince William Forest Park, where we can expand the number of students that we serve. What changes do you see in kids after they've experienced a Nature Bridge program? And do you have any way of knowing if any graduates go on to work in environment and science or the parks? So what I see from a change for students, I mean, a lot of this is, is, is simply qualitative um, narrative and stories that I've heard. But um, I, I remember hearing of this group of, of students, um, Armstrong scholars from across the country who come to this program for a girls high school leadership program in Yosemite National Park in honor of Joey Armstrong and in memory of Joey Armstrong, one of our most amazing educators of all time. And in her memory, they go into the outdoors for two weeks and learn about nature, learning about leadership. And the first thing that happens is that phones are collected when, when students arrive. And on the last day, the students were given their phones back and, and 
you know, for about 10 minutes, they're all on their phone scrolling through and looking at their texts or looking at, at, at whatever social media they had. And then one student, I don't even know if bravely is the right term, but said, why are we doing this? We only have an hour left together. Let's put, can you collect our phones again um, so that we can remain in this moment, in this place and, and live for the now because these phones will always be here later. Um, so I think that's, that's, a story and and I've not done enough research to know um, there are other experts you should be asking about that but I think to, to me that story is is powerful we have over a million alumni of nature bridge and uh, to even begin to recount what those folks are doing now would be an incredible challenge but uh, but I met up with Dr. Nusheen Razani um, she is the director of the Center for Children and Nature at Children's Hospital Oakland and with a dual appointment to UCSF I met with her because she was going to be the keynote speaker for our scheduled gala in May of 2020 and as I was in that pre-conversation with her in her hospital back in February I asked her about her early experiences in nature, and she told me about this trip she had gone on um, as a fourth grader um, as a, uh, from when she was living in L.A. County to Yosemite National Park. I didn't know she was an alum of our program. I didn't know that her first transformative overnight experience in nature was with Nature Bridge. Um, so that was really wild to just get in this conversation with this absolute brilliant thought leader who's championing access for national parks across our country and more than national parks, local parks and, and how to get to those local city and state parks and how to build more cities, city parks. And to find out that, that Nature Bridge was a moment in her life that stimulated this, um, this work that she was doing. And, and just a few others. I mean, we've got uh, Eric Garcetti, the mayor of Los Angeles, went through our program and he was a speaker at an event locally and he still remembered a skit that he had performed, I think back in like seventh or eighth grade um, when he was a Nature Bridge student. And, and Mike Reynolds, the former superintendent of Yosemite National Park, and we've got over a million alums and they are doing things for climate change, for parks, um, for students, they've become teachers, they've become advocates, they've become business leaders. And those are just a few examples of, of the many, many alums that are, that are in our society today. Phil, I want to thank you for taking the time to speak with me today. I enjoyed hearing all about Nature Bridge, learning about your organization and your passion for it. And I wish you the best of luck. Thank you, Lynn. It's a pleasure talking to you. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. If you ventured out into the parks during the long holiday weekend, let us know what you encountered. Drop us a line at news at nationalparkstraveler.org. And if you have a few noteworthy photos, send them along too. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Parks Travelers podcast. 
Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.